Hi, I'm Shreyas. I'm the founder and director of Mycelium Mobility. We are in the space of capitalizing the EV ecosystem in India. Once in every two, three decades, we experience an era of technology change that completely transforms how we live. In the 90s, it was the connected computing devices. And right now we are going through another such transformation in the space of mobility. The future belongs to smart electric vehicles and we can't even imagine today what shapes and forms they would take. One company on the forefront of this revolution is Missilio, and in this episode, Akshay Dutt interviews Shreya Shibulal, the founder of Missilio. Missilio is a true ecosystem builder that is investing in the next generation of mobility startups on the one hand, and on the other hand, is also operating not one but two mobility startups. This conversation is a must listen if you want to understand what the future of mobility could look like from a founder who is building it. Listen on, and if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startups, founders then do subscribe to the founder thesis podcast on any audio streaming app is the approach like an incubator where you would take some equity from members or is it like a cash subscription they have to it's just a subscription. Okay. What part of my CEO is a fund and you've made a couple of bets over there? And I can see six bets that you've made there. Right? The e-plane company is one of them. Then there's Nutrace. Tell me about each of these electric pay, cell propulsion, Shiru, and then race energy. Tell me about each of these. What was the reason you invested in these? Yeah, you'll have to go one by one. Which was the first one you did? Was it Shiru? It was cell propulsion. Self-propulsion. Okay. I think self-propulsion, then Shadu, and, and then Resonary. I think that was the order. But so the first one that we invested in was self-propulsion. I think the LCV category is something that we have quite tremendous. LCV means light commercial vehicle, which means like those three, three wheelers or four wheelers which carry cargo. Uh, so self-propulsion, it's basically data ace. So it's a smaller size four wheel kind of cargo vehicle. I think that's in the logistics world, that's really a workhouse, right? And not just logistics, actually, I mean, there are plenty of other use cases also, but that really is a workhouse. So we had a pretty high conviction. I, I think generally I have a bias towards the logistics space in general, but I think that I think fleets are going to be the first adopters of electric vehicles simply because, yes, there is a higher upfront cost now, but the operational efficiencies you're only going to see at scale. You won't necessarily see it when you're just going to work, coming back and running a few items. So I think from that perspective, we had, and especially this LCV category, I think given that it is already the workhouse, we had a very high conviction and we believe in the product as well. I think plus the, the fact is that there would be a predictable route, like charging issues can be taken care of, you know, as opposed to a consumer play where it's unpredictable. The consumer may want to take a vacation to the hills. And so how do you ensure charging infrastructure? So those issues are not there when you're going on the commercial side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most of the, especially when you talk about logistics, a lot of it works on hub and spoke model. One part of it is yes, fixed route, but also you just have a hub. So you don't really need to worry about that too much. But this is a fairly crowded space, right? You've got Euler, you've got Alti Green, which Reliance invested in. There are a bunch of companies going after this LCV, electrified LCV space. What's your thesis on this? So I think they were one of the early movers. That's what we believe. We also want to capture it when the stage of the company is appropriate for in our context as well. Apart from that, I think we really believed in the team. I think that was one thing. I think the team had a, a huge complementary set. And also they've been quite, they've been quite frugal also. I think that's something that we 
that we noticed. So I think those are things I appreciate about them. And this was also, this investment was made yeah, two years ago now, almost two years ago. So the landscape was also very different then, right? And I think the next you said was uh, Sheru. Yeah, Sheru. So Sheru swappable batteries for, for three wheelers. It's again in that LCV space in a way. No, this is not an LCV. This is, I don't think the technical categorization is it's LCV. It's, it's just three wheelers. So I think there we saw a great, especially when you talk about three wheelers, it is a little bit of a disorganized kind of a sector, right? So I think operational capability really matters. They had managed to get very good traction in a relatively short period of time so that that operational on the ground kind of capability is something that's very important along with the technology which they are, of course have e-plane company of course ev toll aircraft and ev toll is yeah electronic vertical takeoff landing yeah takeoff and landing yeah so they are which is essentially like a flying vehicle in a way they're basically looking at the kind of 500 kilometer range so their vision is to introduce a, a two-seater either a pilot and passenger or pilot and cargo is what they're looking at. Globally, there aren't that many companies that are looking at this. I think the potential for creating aviation platforms and aviation technologies in this country is actually quite massive. And historically, actually, we've been innovating. It's mostly been in the public sector so far, but it's also moving into the private now. So I think, obviously, global landscape, there aren't that many players. I think the idea here is to bring in something at a very competitive price point as well. And of course, introduce a really a global product is the idea. Aviation is quite complicated. Ground mobility is slightly simpler, but not by much. But <laughs> so, yeah. At least in ground mobility, the question of will I be allowed to operate is not there, right? You'll be allowed to operate. Not necessarily. I think the thing is, at least in the Indian context, the things are constrained by form factors, right? So the newest form factor that was introduced in the country was something called the quadricycle, right? Which is what the Bajaj Cute is, that really small kind of passenger vehicle, basically a, a very small car, right? So even if you look at the two-wheeler context, it's supposed to kind of all come together in some way and kind of look similar in some way. So introducing new form factors is can be challenging because first you have to get the kind of the regulatory body to to recognize it and then you have to wait for them to actually come back to you with, okay, this is a new form factor. This is what you need to do to actually get around the road now. So it can be tough to introduce a completely new form factor. It can be difficult, yeah. And any other investment that you were involved in? New Trace, the hydrogen electrolyzer company. We like to call ourselves a clean mobility company, not an electric vehicle company because electric vehicle, yeah, while hydrogen fuel cell is also an electric vehicle, I think the connotation is mostly battery electric. But I think we, but I think, so So hydrogen is something that we have a strong conviction at least for, for long haul buses, for first mile logistics. I think that will be the predominant kind of technology. Help me understand what is the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle? Essentially, what is it like? There is a battery pack which has hydrogen inside, which can be converted into energy or like, what is it basically? So my understanding is that it's, it uses compressed hydrogen, first of all. And there is, there is a process by which that is converted into electricity for propulsion. So instead of burning oil, the engine is burning hydrogen. Not exactly. If you look at internal combustion, it's basically a, chemi a chemical reaction that's converted into a mechanical action, right? Here, it's a chemical reaction that's converted into electricity, which drives a motor. Yeah. Okay. Got it. It's essentially, instead of battery providing the electricity, the hydrogen cell is the source of electricity. I believe Toyota is one of the companies which is taking a bet on hydrogen vehicles globally. Yeah, I think historically, the Japanese companies have been a little bit ahead with hydrogen. I think 
the thing is there's been a lot of hesitation with adoption because or these large scale adoption because infrastructure can be hard to deploy so i think that was one of the concerns now i think there's a little bit of a mindset change i think people are convinced like hey anyways we had to revamp the infrastructure we may as well do this as well so i think what about electric pay were you involved in that yeah so electric pay they have a great technology platform looking at aggregating the entire kind of charging infrastructure space and i think their ability to create a very strategic partnerships has also been quite encouraging right and the team i keep going back to the team because i think in the early stage i think that that's a very big factor right because it's not just because how do you say putting an idea into action is can the execution capability is something that's very important in that early stage right ideas are cheap right at the end of the day anyone can come up with an idea but i think execution capability is something that we really look for how do you evaluate the team when someone is pitching to you for investment do you see a past track record or say a serial entrepreneur would be more appealing to you or what do you look at i think past track record is something that we look at it's difficult to really put into words generally complementary skill set is something that's that's important one one very basic hygiene thing that we do when we ask startups to come and pitch is that we always ask multiple founders to come and present instead of one person doing like the team should have one guy who's more business focused one guy who's more technology focused so that those complementary skill sets are there yeah yeah and it also depends on the stage of the company right because at a different stage of the company different skill sets are required for example when you are R&D or technology development is a very different skill set from manufacturing when you reach that scale or when you reach that stage rather and obviously when you yeah when you're scaling you need a different profile of people as well it's those are all things that we look at okay tell me about there are a couple of business units listed on the mycelio website first Tell me about the name. What does it mean? Mycelium. So mycelium is Spanish for mycelium. So mycelium is basically the basic geometry that we see in many different things in nature. We see it in our nervous system. We see it in the roots of plants. And the idea is that there's this one thing that's connecting a lot of different things in nature, which is a network or an ecosystem rather. So we kind of we kind of related to that quite a bit because what we're trying to do is. catalyze the ecosystem tell me about these uh, other units that are listed on your website yeah there there are two other ventures that i'm involved in uh, which are slightly more commercial in nature one is numerous motors we are looking at developing a at the moment we are we are looking at developing a two wheeler for the last one so this is the idea was that there be we saw a gap in the market in terms of a two wheeler that was purpose built for the gig economy for last mile logistics most of the vehicles that were on the road were meant for the commuter use case so this vehicle is from performance reliability durability standpoint is really made for that use case and then the other company that we have is is a logistics company so it's a last mile logistics company so we so we are a b2b service provider so we provide the vehicle plus the rider so we have around 1400 or 1500 vehicles right now operating in four different cities in india you know our customers are they're either e-commerce players courier bomb and pop stores those are kind of companies that we work with the logistics company has been operational for what three three years now so far we've been buying we've been buying vehicles off the shelf we've been working with different oems but eventually we will start using the the vehicle that we are also working on uh, you do three wheeler two wheeler what vehicle do you do in lightning yeah so lightning logistics also we recently rebranded so we're called n2 now e n t o o N2 ENTO so we operate two and three wheelers but mostly two wheelers yeah so this would be say like a shadow facts uh, shadow facts is doing hyper local logistics as a service so you would be in a similar space to them like hyper local logistics as a service but we are 100% electric so yeah yeah 100% electric 
Okay, okay, okay. And you uh, work with like startups or with like more traditional players or like what is the as our customers? So it's it's a mixed bag, I think. But I think most of our business does come from more established and larger companies. Okay, okay. And this is essentially like retail companies who are delivering stuff to customers. That would be yeah, they're all in the retail space. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, how does that get funded? I mean, fifteen hundred vehicles is this like? debt funded or is it equity funded or it's a fairly high amount of capital investment yeah so we started off uh, i want to say 100 200 vehicles were bought by the company but we moved completely into uh, a leasing model so we've kind of we've basically converted that capital expense to join into opex so that's the model that we're working on right now how tell me about the driver in this i believe one of the key ingredients of running a logistic services oh yeah drivers right so how, what are some of the things you're doing there like how do you source how do you train how do you retain how do you keep that stakeholder happy yeah yeah so this is yeah so the, this is a extremely kind of vital part of our business as you would know yeah. i think keeping the rider happy retention controlling the churn basically mm-hmm. right yeah so the way that we are going about it is that We've realized that the mentality of someone who wants to be in the space, be a writer, they're looking at it as more a stopgap, something that's temporary, a job that won't really go anywhere. So what we are doing is actually we're, we want to work on more things that we can do. But right now, what we're working on is creating a path for writers who are really performing well, who have stayed with us for some time, a path for them to actually become an operations executive. Okay. In a certain period of time. So that's one thing that we're doing. So instead of a, like a per trip payment, they get a fixed monthly salary and benefits and things like that. that that's a path that they would work towards. Most of our riders, yeah, that's it's a per trip payment. But that's a path they would work towards. Apart from that, they also get a lot of exposure into electric vehicles and how to, how to repair, how to maintain a vehicle. But that's really something that we're working on to see. And actually, we've already done it. We have, we, we do have riders who have already made their way into kind of more of an operations executive kind of a role. And from there, and I think this is something that we've already seen in certain other logistics companies. There are certain other larger logistics companies who have said, we don't want to work with a traditional org structure where you have to have this degree or have this money or experience to be in this certain role. So we are also trying to break down those walls within our organization to see how we can empower that rider community even more. Having an electric vehicle for hyper-local logistics service, how does that impact the economics of the business? The upfront cost might be higher, the running cost might be lower. Talk to me about that. What are the economics of that? Yeah, upfront cost is something that we're kind of managing with the leasing model. So that's something that we're doing. The operational cost, it's just starting to make more and more sense now with the rising costs of fuel. So operational efficiencies are definitely there. One of the things that we're working on operationally is how, because all vehicles are done, especially two-wheelers, they have a limited life. The 100,000 kilometers itself is really like pushing it. So what do you do after that? What do you do after the warranty period is something that we're trying to understand. So that is, again, that, that is... While it is a logistics company, we also have an R&D team to actually figure out those problems, right? To see what kind of second life would look like for some of these vehicles, right? And how do we kind of really stretch it out to the maximum? Okay. So one part of operational efficiency comes simply from the duration for which a vehicle can be in service. And what about a per kilometer cost? What is the differential there, like between petrol and Oh, last I checked, it was one-sixth. Wow, one-sixth. Massive. Okay. But I think that would have changed now. I think it will be even even less. Well, 
Essentially, this would probably replace traditional hyperlocal, like at least the gas-based hyperlocal services. There is so much of a price difference here, right? So I think say, it depends how you look at it, right? If you uh, see the regulatory interventions are already happening. The, uh, it's, it's very clear that as days for... What are the regulatory interventions that are happening? If you look at Delhi, I know by 2030 or something like that, they want to transition their entire last mile logistics. All the last mile logistics kind of companies in the city have to be electric, right? Those policies will trickle down to the rest of the country also eventually. So th there is a direction that's being taken from a regulatory standpoint. Without the regulatory intervention, see, if you look at it now, the space from multiple different angles, one important differentiator with us is that we provide the rider with a vehicle. So that is something that is different about us. And that's the, from a recruitment standpoint also, that's something that we use to our advantage because hey, we're saying, hey, we're providing a vehicle for you. If, whereas if you look at other logistics companies, it's mostly, kind of, it works on aggregator model, right? So typically what happens is the rider will, will pick up a second other. Got a bike coming on, like that's their pitch. It's not even they got a bike, right? It's a lot of the time it's, I'm going to buy a second-hand bike just for this because I don't want to ruin my the bike that I'm going to use. So it's difficult to control that unless there's a regulatory intervention or the company themselves provides a vehicle. And again, the reason why a lot of this is happening is because upfront costs, because it's impossible to compete with a with second-hand vehicle that's already run like 30, 40,000 kilometers already. It's impossible to kind of compare the two even. So I think both the rising fuel costs and regulatory kind of interventions are going to play a role in kind of, at least for the logistics sector, I think seeing that transition. Yeah. So with an electric vehicle that you own, there, there is opportunity for more technology intervention around telematics and other stuff. Tell me a little bit about that. Like what all stuff are you doing? So we did run a few experiments in, in, in capturing mostly kind of traffic related and geo basic geo tracking some parameters around the vehicle as well which gave us an insight into which vehicles in the market are better for certain use cases or because the even in our even in the last one logistics business we have different mission profiles right so we have are you going to go on a certain fixed route and come back is it mostly ad hoc are you going within a five kilometer radius are you going even less so getting those vehicle parameters and aligning that to our fleet is something that we've done and route optimization things like that we've done that as well yeah probably even driver behaviors like how well is somebody driving the vehicle you'd be able to get data on that predictive maintenance stuff like that or, or even charging deciding that this vehicle will need a charging soon those are also things that we've, we've collected you know it's sometimes it can be hard to especially because we are buying these vehicles off the shelf and it is hard to get everything without kind of destroying your factory warranty so that's yeah that's something that we're quite careful about yeah yeah, okay, okay. And which vehicles are your preferred? Which ones do you use? So we use a few different vehicles. We've used Hero, we've used Ampere, Okinawa, we've used Indra vehicle, E-Trio. So we've used a couple of different OEMs so far. But you see a space for like a vehicle built for this use case, which is why there is Numeros. Yeah. Can you help me understand why there is a need for a separate vehicle for gig economy. In the traditional oil burning vehicles, there is no separate vehicle for a gig economy worker, right? They all use the same kind of same few vehicles. So, so what is it that's missing that you want to, what are those gaps that you want to plug? So that's a good observation that you made that even if you look at the kind of traditional internal combustion vehicles, while there is none that have been exclusively purpose-built and marketed that way, there are definitely preferences. You'll say, I want to use this vehicle for gig economy work, but I don't want to use this vehicle. And that has happened because there have been so 
because the space has evolved over decades, right? The market is flooded with many different products. Some happen to be better suited while they're not marketed. They don't need to market it because everyone knows. But I think what's happened in the electric vehicle space is that it's still, the product offering is still quite limited. So because there, there aren't as many permutation combinations, no one has really hit the bottle on the head and been like, this is the vehicle to use for economy work. While there is no, I agree with you, there's no particular two-wheeler that's been new, that's been marketed for economy work. There are definitely, there's definitely a few out there that already exist, at least in the internal combustion world. And I think our experience and also the, the reality, the market kind of speaks for itself that when you try to use a vehicle that's not really meant for economy work, you're going to be, again, even in the market right now, there are some that are better than others, but we are running a last mile logistics company. But the gig economy also comprises of individuals who are themselves micro entrepreneurs, right? So when if you're not able to provide a if there's no vehicle out there that's gonna provide a good uptime. Uptime is the most important thing in this business because if you don't have uptime, you cannot deliver to the what does uptime mean here? Is it range? No, uptime means the vehicle is ready for use, right? There's no breakdown. That's what it means. So you're not able to provide uptime because even even if you look at our writers, they themselves are micro entrepreneurs, right? They're being paid by, for delivery. So if they are if they're having struggles with uptime, that that means I mean yes, the company suffers, but they also suffer, right? So I think that's really where we are seeing and the vehicle that we are producing, we're really looking at it as a livelihood vehicle. It needs to work when it needed to work. So how does this reliability get built into a vehicle? What are you doing differently in terms of your product development? Like the way you would be designing that vehicle must be different, right? So tell me about some of the innovations you're doing over there or some of the features that you are bringing in which are disruptive. A few different things, right? So one is that, of course, the mechanical, we really did not want to take any chances there. And and just kind of rigidity and durability in general. We didn't want to cut any corners. And we do an extensive amount of testing, right? Which is how we become sure. Because on, at the end of the day, you can model a, a great vehicle, but you won't really know what the issues are until you do an extensive amount of testing, right? So we, we do tests for you know, 50,000, 100,000 kilometers and make sure that it, it works. We we also include certain features which are very much specific for, for the last mile logistics use case. And one example is just a box in the back, right? It's a very simple thing. More space in the front, kind of between your legs to put keep cargo. Okay, okay. More cargo capacity, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm guessing that the data that Lightning Logistics is getting about usage of vehicle would be helping Numeros to design a better vehicle. Numeros vehicles could get tested at Lightning Logistics. And so like both these companies are like very symbiotic in that sense. And you have a majority stake in both of them. They're both like funded through the family office, I'm guessing. Like, yeah. Okay. Okay. What's the roadmap? First, tell me the roadmap for Lightning and then Numeros. So what's the roadmap for Lightning? You have 1500 vehicles now. What's your target? How many vehicles do you want to be out there? What is the total addressable market over here. Where do you see that going? I think we're ready to use a new brand name. So we're calling it Enclu. Yeah. So Enclu, now we're at about 1,500 vehicles. We're looking at another 1,000 vehicles at least this year. And maybe next year, another 3,000. So we are in that growth phase, at least in the next two to three years. Currently, we're operating in Bangalore, Hyderabad, Chennai, and Delhi. So we want to explore tier two and tier three cities as well to see where we can play over there. The other thing with N2 is that right now we have just this last mile logistics service offering. We, wa we want to see if we can play in other areas which are also linked to, to micromobility. One, 
you're running a few different experiments. I think some, something that's all, already some kind of vertical integration plays what we're kind of looking at in, in the logistics sector itself. But what does that mean, vertical integration? One one thing, for example, is to get into some kind of warehousing. And another thing is utilizing the existing assets for other use cases, bike taxi or something like that. So we want to experiment a little bit more and kind of, we, we really end to in the long run, I think it's got to be more of a mobility services company. For cargo, basically like any kind of a local cargo movement. Yeah. Would you be getting into the three-wheeler form factor and uh, like the, the mini truck? That, that Tata is perfect then also? For manufacturing? No, for N2. So N2, we already run three-wheelers. So we already run three-wheelers in N2, yeah. So expanding to more cities, different types of cities, is also something that we're keen to do for N2. And what is the lever for growth there that you need to press on? Is it capital? Is it customer acquisition? What is? I think if the two things are probably, one is rider, it's, it's a rider and the vehicle, I think. So it's a supply constraint business, basically. Like demand is there on tap. If you want to grow, you can easily capture demand. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think, yeah. Okay, because the cost difference for a customer, is it cheaper or do you charge the customer same as what a ICE vehicle provider would be charging? I think it's still quite comparable. Today we're quite comparable. So today for a customer, the value proposition is like reducing carbon footprint. Okay, so when I think when we work with customers, I think most customers that we work with by and large, they prioritize three things when they're looking at a logistics partner. One is liability followed by price. And then maybe offtakes of carbon footprint, etc. Some companies, they're mandated either by their board or the government that they are originally kind of associated with. So that's the thing, right? So like we, we are, yes, we are an EV first mobility company and two, but that doesn't mean that we can ignore the other aspects of being a good logistics company, which is being a reliable partner, right? Which we work very hard to do. Because you own the vehicle, so your reliability would be more than company which is just asking the gig economy workers to get their own vehicle. That would impact the liability in a big way. Since you own the vehicle, you're responsible for maintenance. Yeah, so that's one aspect of it. We have a lot more control on the operations. And what's the roadmap for Numeros? When do you plan to launch the vehicle? What kind of price point are you looking at? What is the sales and distribution strategy or the go-to-market strategy? So our first vehicle, I think most of it is going to be capital use with, with N2. I think we may look at a smaller portion of it for the external market. For our next vehicle, definitely, I think we'll be looking at the larger market, probably even the export market as well. We want to come up with a few different form factors and a few different variants in each of those form factors. So right now we're working on a vehicle that's a little bit more heavy duty, can take it a load. But uh, we also want to work on maybe a lighter weight form factor with all focus on food delivery, uh, 15 kilo. And then after that, maybe a small four wheeler or three wheeler or something like that. But those are the kind of things that we have in the roadmap. So we want to be a multi form factor, multi variant kind of a company. The facility that we have right now, it has a capacity of 50,000 vehicles per, per year at max. So nowhere close to that. But, but are you pretty, is it live? Are you already at the vehicles coming out of the shop floor right now? Or is it still R&D state? We have a limited number of vehicles has come out, but full scale kind of product. Like you're at beta stage, basically. We're, we're a little bit more, we're a little bit further along than beta, but we're very close to production. Yeah. What do you see as first year's run? Like how many vehicles will you? produce it. So first year we're looking at maybe around, so we're looking at maybe around 1,000 and then after that 10,000 for the next year is what we're looking at. Yeah. And are there government subsidies for EVs? Like, like what is the 
regulatory support for an EV manufacturer. So yeah, I mean, there's the predominant kind of scheme is the same two scheme. So it's basically a, it's a government subsidy and the criteria to, to be eligible is some level, at least the predominant criteria to be eligible is some kind of, some level of indigenization with components in the vehicle. So then the government gives you a per vehicle that you churn out, it gives you a certain amount or something like that. It happens at the point, it happens at the time of sale not at the time of production. Okay, okay. So the customer is subsidized, basically. Okay, interesting. Okay. You've seen this sector from multiple lenses. Can you like give a lay of the land for the sector and where do you see, by say, over the next five years, where do you see it going? See, if you look at the automobile market in India right now, 70% of the vehicles on the road are two and three wheelers. And it accounts for maybe two thirds of the kind of oil imports that we're, of the, of the consumption of the oil imports that we're seeing in the country. And I think crude oil is something like what, like third largest import, something top, definitely top five. So I think both from carbon footprint perspective, but also from bringing value to the economy, government is convinced that it makes sense. At least that's the sense that I'm getting. And I, in, even to the common person, so I think it's, it's because ultimately this, the fuel is being consumed by us in different ways. Either we're, we're ordering Swiggy and we're, some amount of that is gas money or we're going to work and we're paying for gas directly, right? So either way, I think the value ultimately boils down to the consumers. So I think both the private sector as well as the government just kind of convinced that this is a direction that they want to take, especially in the context of fleet. And I think that the fact that, you know, 70% the vehicles on the road and two or three wheelers are also playing well to the fact that with the kind of current constraints of battery electric because two and three wheeler for long haul it's not extremely common it's mostly kind of in a certain hyper local kind of range right so i think that i think that will be the first that will be the first kind of adoption that we'll see and then larger form factors yes a first mile long haul buses locomotive, all those are definitely areas to tackle, but it's between the 30%, right? It's even smaller than that as an actual absolute figure. But I think there is a parallel effort happening starting now, which is still maybe where EV was maybe like, at least battery electric was maybe like five years ago is maybe where, where we are looking at kind of those, those first mile kind of problems. And what all stakeholders need to come together to make EV a success. Who are the key stakeholders here in this ecosystem? There's only so much that government can do because at the end of the day, if you look at same today, it's still taxpayer money, right? Which is kind of going back into the economy to kind of uh, to incentivize demand. So they're only going to last for for so long before the government also has to pull the plug. While they do play a role in laying out the regulatory framework, you know, any kind of cash incentives is only going to be temporary. Bigger stakeholders are definitely kind of in the private sector where either a kind of a more established OEM or a kind of smaller startups. For startups, the key is to really come together and see even between different startups where the complementary skill sets are and to come together and to, and to see how we how they can work together to actually introduce kind of an end-to-end product. What we had been noticing maybe two, three years ago is that there were a lot of companies who had kind of brilliant amount of expertise on maybe one core area of kind of an electric vehicle. And because they were not able to find a market for it, they had to build a subpar product around it to package their technology and then put it to market, which is not always ideal. It's almost never ideal. You're much more be- you're much better off kind of going with an approach where you collaborate with other entities that kind of bring in all those complementary skill sets and then increase in our vehicle. So I think collaboration is something that we're going to be, especially when it comes to startups, I think that's very key going forward. Like in traditional ICE vehicles, you have all these stakeholders, say you have the OEMs, you have the ancillary units that supply the OEMs, you have the dealer network, which is like small entrepreneurs, you have 
financiers, uh, insurance companies. So where does that stand with respect to EV, like this entire ecosystem of stakeholders? So I think that model does require a little bit of rethinking in the context of, of EVs, mostly because the, especially the traditional dealer network, right? Because if you look at dealers, a lot of the revenue, most of the revenue comes from servicing. And EVs don't generate servicing revenue as compared to ICE. And not as much, not as much. Or yeah, so I think that is something that will have to be maybe rethought a little bit. Maybe instead of single brand dealers, you would have like multi brand dealers. The way say a cycle is sold, there are very few single brand cycle retailers. It's mostly yeah. Maybe. And also kind of introducing common parts between vehicles would also make that transition a little bit easier if you're able to identify a few common parts. But that also has to be an industry collaboration. And I think that realization will happen that being like the dealers are not able to make money. We need to introduce common parts so that a few different brands can go to a single dealer. Because it's not that they don't require servicing at all. It's but it's just that the revenues are going to look very different. And if you, and other parts of the ecosystem, you mentioned kind of the, the financing side of it. It's something that's still evolving. The traditional kind of finance sector is still not really forgivable about because they're not able to determine what the residual value is. And as a result of that, the kind of the interest rate to is higher than if you look at kind of internal combustion vehicles. Internal combustion vehicles, residual value, they're there are just formulas. People just use that to determine the value. I'm guessing that a financier for an electric would have to be a data first business because we just generate so much data because they have sensors on device and telematics. And they would have to, yeah. Because even if you look at it today, the cost of the battery is used to be 50%. It's still probably around 50% itself, but 50% of the cost of the vehicle. I think the stage of life of the battery determining that is you can only do it with the data, right? There's no other way that you can do it. And what about the insurers? Insurance for? Same thing, right? Because insurance also works in the model of the current regulatory framework in India is for around insurance is different from say the US or something like that because in the US they care about driver track record, driver behavior. They're able to kind of put in all those algorithms. Here it's what is the value of the card? This is how much you, can, you can't play around with it. So driver A and B pay the same premium if they have the same cars. Yeah, they pay the same. So even insurance, it works on the value of the vehicle. So the only thing that you can go by is the value of the vehicle. And if you haven't figured that out, then it's the same. It's the same problem, really. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in.